For everyone with an interest in NASH, or more broadly, fatty liver disease, Surf's Up, Season 2, Episode 33, our Day 2 Summary of Digital ILC 2021, starts now. This week... Close to 10,000 stakeholders from across the global hepatology community are convening virtually for the Digital International Liver Congress 2021, a four-day meeting with well over 100 sessions on a broad range of liver-related topics. Join hepatology researchers and key opinion leaders, Professor Jarn Schottenberg, Dr. Michelle Long, and Dr. Naeem Alkouri, Global Liver Institute European Office and International NASH Day Director Livia Alamena and pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green as they discuss some of Thursday's key presentations and messages today on the Surfing the NASH Tsunami podcast. So today's session ended 90 minutes ago with tremendous energy and enthusiasm, some fantastic presentations, a few of which we will be discussing in the next uh, hour or so. I saw on the counter close to a thousand people in most of the events I visited, and it looked like the counter might only have had three digits in it. So I don't know whether that was 800, 1800, or 8800, but clearly a lot of folks were around. Now, studio audience, I'd like to thank the folks who've joined. This is the first time we've ever done this with a live podcast. We ran a test last week. It worked out okay. So we're trying it for real now. If you have a question you would like to ask us during the event, there's a button on your screen, depending upon what kind of server, you, whether you have a Mac or a PC or an Android machine, I think the button is slightly different. But fundamentally, you click it if you want to ask a question, the wording comes up, you ask the question, and then you send that in. I will have a list. And at the end of each presentation, we will check to see what's on the list, and we will take it from there. So now with that, let me just kind of kick it off. Our panel today includes four folks that we're fortunate to have with us. I'm going to do this in the order that my screen shows you. Next to me on the top row, and I don't know how that works for anybody else, is, uh, is Dr. Michelle Long, Boston University. Uh, those of you who were around at uh, 10 o'clock this morning in Europe, uh, 4 o'clock this morning in the East, or in the case of Naeem, 1 o'clock in the morning in the West Coast, uh, got to watch Michelle co-chair a fantastic session that encompasses many of the papers we'll be discussing today. Hey, Michelle, how are you? Great. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. And still awake. For those of you who don't know, Michelle, being a true hero, worked out right after her session. So she got her workout in today already. Naeem was too tired, and I had too much work to do. But Michelle was totally a trooper. Okay, next to her, we have Olivia Alamena, who is the International European Coordinator for Global Liver Institute. I'm going to ask Michelle and Olivia to tell us a little bit about themselves in just a minute, but let me work my way through. Going straight down for Olivia is Professor Jorn Schottenberg. Those of you who know the podcast, or who know the European community doing well. He's Stephen Harrison describes him as the nicest guy in Nash, but he's also a prolific author on a whole range of subjects and a fantastic contributor to the podcast. Another one of my favorite contributors is to his left on my screen, Naeem Alkouri, who sets the um, human pain record for getting up at 12.30 this morning to watch Michelle's presentation. I will be up at 2 tomorrow morning to watch the insulin resistance talk, but 2 and 12.30 are vastly different. Naeem, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Roger. Always a pleasure. So, for those in our audience who've been listening, you know that we tend to ask folks to add, tell us a little bit about themselves. I'm going to shorten that today, but Michelle, first you, and then Olivia, if you could take just a minute, tell us a little bit about your history, your background, how you got to where you are today and your interests. And then one thing we wouldn't know about you if you didn't tell us. Great. So I'm Michelle Long. I'm an associate professor, uh, newly newly promoted at Boston University uh, School of Medicine. And I got interested in fatty liver disease when I was a medical resident and saw patients with advanced liver disease from this condition of NASH that 
that I had never heard of before and wasn't taught about in medical school. This is back in like 2008 or 2009 ish. And really from there, continued my interest to grow um, in my medical training and became interested in the overlap between fatty liver disease and cardiovascular disease. And that's a lot of where my work sits right now. So something you might not know about me is that I love spending a lot of time outside. I spent most of my 20s traveling around, but when I was not in school, uh, which was most of my 20s to be fair, but I spent a lot of time rock climbing and hiking around uh, the US. So I've been all over and I still like to do that with my family. So what's the most ambitious climb you've made? Oh, probably a half dome. I would say, and then climbing up Half Dome and, and coming down the cables in Yosemite Valley. For those who don't know, Half Dome is a serious business, quite a serious business. That's great. Okay, Livia, a minute, and then one thing we wouldn't know about you, and then we'll get started. Thank you. First of all, thank you, Roger, for inviting me and being here with this remarkable analyst today. It's an honor for me to represent today the Global Liver Institute, as you mentioned before, that I had the pleasure to join two years ago. And many of you, I'm sure, know very well our inspiring president and founder, Donna Cryer. That will be your guest, I believe, on Saturday. I got interest in basically healthcare and in the well-being of people, although I'm not a doctor myself, as you know. I'm more interested in the policy aspects and in doing changes in life. And so into transferring meaningful information from the, the doctors and from, you know, the expert into policy and actions. And that's why I am particularly happy to be working and managing not only the European International Office for the Global Liver Institute, but a project that I believe you heard about it recently, and that being the International Nash Day that took place on June 10th. And we were partnering with more than 120 partners around the world with 60 countries and the WHO. So I'm particularly happy that we can probably managed to get Nash Neffeld in the WHO agenda. Something about me that people wouldn't know, uh, well, as you can probably see from the background here, I'm very much interested in fine arts and in the arts. Uh, although this is not my artwork, this is my mother's artwork and she is a famous painter of the Italian futurism, the second period. So these are her paintings and I like going and visiting uh, exhibitions, concerts, and also in, the, in nature. Thank you. You're certainly in the right city if you like art. Yes, I agree. One of the most beautiful cities. Livia, Livia is in Rome, for those who don't know or couldn't have guessed from my comment. All right. So with that, why don't we shift into the bulk of our meeting and thanks both of you for great introductions. I'm going to throw out a question. And as we usually do on the podcast, I'm just going to say, brave one, go first, and we'll see what happens. Our icebreaker question today is, one thing you observed or learned today that took you by surprise? It could be a data point in a paper, something about the interactivity of the program, or just how fresh you felt at 2.30 or 12.30 or whatever in the morning when you realized that that was when you were paying attention to session. Brave one, go first. I'll go first. As you said, I was very pleased to wake up at 12.30 in the morning to attend the session. So I really hope this will be the last ESO International Liver Congress that we do only virtual. Hopefully next year we'll get to go in person and be with our colleagues. It just, it has a different flavor. One thing that really took me by surprise and stayed with me was from the presentation from Sweden about life expectancy and cardiovascular disease. And I don't want to steal anyone's thunder, but one slide was really important in my mind was about the loss and life expectancy by age. And if you 
you're between the ages of 40 and 60 and you're a man, you almost lost six years of your life. And this is NAFLD, not a NASH with advanced fibrosis. So to me, I feel like, you know, I, I felt guilty. I'm like, when I see patients in my clinic and they just have steatosis and no evidence of significant fibrosis, I tend to be more reassuring, be like, oh, okay, try to work on your diet, exercise, come back in a year. I think I'm going to start using this in my counseling for patients that NAFLD by itself is a big deal and you are losing years of your life and we need to get more aggressive with it. Thanks, Naeem. I have a sneaking suspicion that if that's not a high point when Jorn talks about this paper, that we're going to come back to it because I thought that was a pretty mind-grabbing moment. I totally agree. Okay, next one. Who wants to go next? All right, let me give it a shot. And I, I agree. I'm going to be talking about that uh, in, a, in a minute. But the other paper I enjoyed was in the general session and it talked about the concept of food insecurity. And this is something that was fairly, um, you know, I haven't thought about this in the past. And it's not about poverty or not being able to afford this. It's about the composition of the food, I guess. And that had an impact on patients and outcomes. And I thought that was along the line what Naeem said. That's important for people to be educated about and, and, and really know and understand. Okay, excellent. Lydia, Michelle, somebody dive in. Yeah, great. So I also was struck by a paper. This was one of the litmus update papers on the biomarker screening strategies to identify at-risk NASH cases. And they went through a number of newer biomarkers and more commonly used biomarkers and were able to talk about the number needed to test in order to have identify active NASH, NAFLD activity score greater than or equal to four or fibrosis of at least F2. And I was struck by how well TIB4 continues to do compared to other biomarkers or more fancy tests. Olivia, I guess that leaves you since I tend to go last on this stuff. Indeed. Yes, you guessed well, Roger. Well, I also was um, very much impressed by the session this morning with Quentin Ansi, the think tank about metabolic diseases that was just mentioned. But on the, let's say, policy aspect and from the point of view of a patient-led organization, what got my attention is something that we already know. Every year when we organize the International NASH Day, we talk about it. But to see that also doctors think that this is important, it surprised me a lot. And that is that there is still an enormous, enormous lack of awareness among GPs, general practitioners, about NASH, NAFLD, about risk factors, and also about NITs. So there is an enormous work still to be done that obviously we can take part of and work on together and try to change that. And this is one of the reasons why we have started including primary care organizations like Primary Care Diabetes Europe in our projects. And they were very happy that we reached them out uh, because there is a lot to do under this aspect as well. The reason I go last is that I'm not embarrassed when I say things like the two things that struck me most are the one that Naeem mentioned and the one that Jorn mentioned. But food insecurity is not a new concept to me. But there was one number in that presentation that really smacked me, which was the idea that elderly people with advanced fibrosis who are at least marginally food insecure, that increases the mortality rate by about 22%, if I remember the exact number correctly, somewhere between one in four and one in five, which is a mind-bending number, particularly when you keep in mind that in the U.S. where the study was done, a significant portion of the post-working population is $50,000 or less in total assets and plans on living 15 or 20 years. So many of those people will qualify as marginally food insecure simply because they're trying to make a little bit of money last a long time. And I believe they have no awareness at all of the 
life consequence. And let me go on and say that if, in fact, that advanced fibrosis will also have an effect on the quality of their lives, we know that it affects quality of life scores. So in essence, by trying to scrimp a little bit on food, they will feel worse and live shorter. So, and I mean, when you mentioned at the beginning, making a mental note about things you might want to talk to your patients about, this one jumps way up on my list for older patients who you can tell by what kind of health plans they've got and clothing they wear and other things, who's likely to be in that marginally insecure class and think they're doing okay, but really they're not. Not just for you, but I think for the, the whole treating population. I thought that was staggering. I'm, I'm roughly of that age, and my wife has good friends from high school who I'm sure fall into that category. So that was pretty staggering to me. And with that, now let's dive into the body of our um, meeting today. I've asked each of us, including me, to take one particular presentation during the morning or a poster, although today it's all presentations, and share five or six minutes talking about it and what it said and why we think that was so important. And I'm going to use my brave one go first rule, although you're inside, I'm going to do that in just a minute, so I assume he's already primed. If you're not, or Naomi, if you want to beat him to the punch, or Michelle, I'll let you go ahead. Brave one, go first. So I'm ready sitting here. If nobody else raises his voice, I'm just going to go ahead and say that was a fabulous uh, session, and I really enjoyed it a lot, and uh, congratulations to Michelle for sharing that. And the first paper I'm going to be presenting um, that was actually the first presentation, I believe, in that session, and it was given by Ying Shang from the Karolinska Institute in Sweden and explored life expectancy and risk factors of cardiovascular disease and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in this type of population-based analysis that the Swedish registries actually do allow. And I think this is a tremendous resource for the field. They have produced a number of highly ranked publications and frequently referenced. So I'm sure this one is going to go out in that league too. And now let me just have a look. The question they asked is straightforward and simple. Using that Swedish National Patient Registry that actually has linked death records, they identified patients with NAFLD and excluded baseline cardiovascular disease under the age of 18 years or other liver diseases. And then they looked at the range between 1970 and 2016, so covering really a long period of time. And the main research question was to see see how NAFLD affects cardiovascular disease. Straightforward question, very relevant. There's a lot of discussion in the field. You know, what's the, the cardiovascular disease, the most prominent outcome in these patients with NAFLD and, and, and what are the risk factors? So I think this is very important. And also they stratified or could examine some subgroups, in particular the presence of cirrhosis, for example, and then calculated some life expectancy. And, and Naeem mentioned this, and I think this is really fascinating part of the data. So the way they set it up, they had over 13,000 individuals with NAFLD and 10 times more matched non-NAFLD individuals from this population-based study, making that 100,000 controls, giving you an idea about the power of these type of analyses. Now, in the results section, the first set of results was related to the hazard ratio of NAFLD patients versus controls to have cardiovascular disease, and they separated the non-fatal cardiovascular disease from fatal cardiovascular disease. And interestingly, the non-fatal cardiovascular disease really came up as a high hazard ratio compared to the controls. But even when looking into the subgroup of patients with NAFLD and comparing cirrhotics with non-cirrhotics, there was an additional increase in the hazard ratio, again, in the non-fatal cardiovascular disease, but also in the overall with regards to this endpoint. So uh, I think that was fascinating because they could show a difference compared to the healthy controls. And then they could even show a difference within that NAFLD risk group, showing that more advanced stages uh, have an add-on risk. And you know, going over that long timescale, I mentioned starting in, in the 1970s, they had more than 30 
30 to 40 years of being diagnosed, they were actually able to show that the cumulative incidence in cardiovascular disease, and remember, they excluded baseline cardiovascular disease at the beginning. So those were healthy, or at least non-diagnosed cardiovascular patients. The two lines separated, particularly for the non-fatal cardiovascular disease with the NAFLD population showing a significantly higher incidence. And the absolute risk in the cirrhotics, again, was higher compared to the non-cirrhotics. Then doing some of those hazard ratio calculations, uh, the adjusted hazard ratio for non-fatal was 3.1. And interestingly enough, if the uh, cardiovascular disease had emerged, I think there was no effect anymore telling us that really there seems to be a turning point where when cardiovascular disease builds, NAFLD doesn't impact the prognosis anymore. However, if there's no cardiovascular disease at the beginning, then really NAFLD is one factor that drives these events. And coming to the, I think it was almost last slide, they showed the calculation of loss and life expectancies. I noted down those numbers and I'm looking at them right now. And Naim was right on when he said it's actually the age group that was 40 to 60 years where a loss and life expectancy was 5.7 years. And in, in the older class, the 60 to 80s, this was only 2.7. And if above the years of 80, that was below one. So it gives us the idea and reinforces the concept that NAFLD is a slowly progressive disease. It adds to extra hepatic risk, not if you already have developed cardiovascular disease and, and, and really your coronary artery stenosis is driving your outcome, but in that subclinical part where hepatic inflammation potentially adds to endothelial dysfunction and cardiovascular disease when you're in your 40s and overweight and type 2 diabetes, and, and that's where you're really going to lose a lifetime. You know, the next important message is that means we have a lot of opportunities to actually counsel those patients to and potentially turn the wheel back and, and, and prevent something with lifestyle or, or medications at the time those become available. And with that, I think, um, again, fascinating presentation, great data set, and I'm sure we're going to see this in a full paper published soon. Okay, great. So first of all, I see no questions from the audience. So if anyone in the audience is asking a question, it's not coming through, please just send me a note on LinkedIn to tell me that you're doing that, and we'll try to figure out how to solve it. Norn, I, I really had... Uh, a couple of reactions. Number one, Professor Berg, in the interview that he did with me for the pre-event podcast, talked about how increased information about genetics will enable us to do a better job of educating our patients why they can't live exactly the same life that their next door neighbors do. I'm wondering how that comment about genetics plays into what you, what they found in this paper, if at all, and particularly given the finding about the non-fatal coronary CVD versus fatal CVD. I'm trying, I'm trying to get those all organized in my mind a little bit. Those are two good comments, Roger. And I'm going to give you my thought, but maybe someone else wants to jump in here too. I think the genetic phenotyping is, of course, difficult because you're going to burden that individual. And I always find it difficult to transport a message saying you can't do anything about your genes and this puts you at the spot and, and you're at risk. So I'm always torn how to use that in, in counseling of patients, of course. I, I think you're right that there are phenotypes or genotypes in, in the literature that have been identified that predispose to more severe outcome, more rapid disease progression. Also, the balance between cardiovascular and liver disease has been shown to be adversely affected, for example, with the TM6SF2. And I think, of course, underlying genetic is an important outcome. On the other hand, cardiovascular is so much depending on lifestyle and environmental factors, smoker, non-smoker, and NAFLD in this context, which emerges in the context of overnutrition and metabolic risk factors. So it's one part of the puzzle, in my view. Yeah, but to go back to the point about counseling, they 
data from Helen Hobbs with the Dallas Heart Study showed nicely that your BMI affects your amount of hepatic triglycerides with the PMPLA3 variant. And if you kept your BMI under 25, they really did not differ that much from people that didn't have the variant. So the way I do it in my clinic, I tell my patients, your genes are, you, are not your destiny. You can actually fight back. We're, we're not talking about a single mutation disease like sickle cell, where you really cannot modify that phenotypic expression. So I think it's important. I think most of the genes we have in NAFLD are kind of modifiable. And we saw a lot of data now that's just happening too fast with trying to silence genes with the short interferon RNA, antisense oligonucleotides. I mean, almost every variant we talk about is being targeted, which is really reassuring. So potentially, you in the future, we can identify the gene and just target it pharmacologically. So Michelle, I see you nodding. Yeah, I agree that, you know, this is definitely a complex disease state. And I think that our knowledge of the genetics of NAFLD, NASH, is, and fibrosis is really an infancy. We are, are not explaining the full genetic risk that patients have with the handful of traits that we've identified so far. And I think we also don't understand the epigenetic changes that perhaps occur with these lifestyle modifications or lack thereof. So I completely agree that the genes are not our destiny. And I, I'm not sure how much someone's genotype is going to impact the counseling. I, it may be that we use genes and our information about the genetics of NAFLD in different ways, like perhaps in identifying compounds that might potentially be helpful rather than in identifying higher risk patients. Other thoughts or shall we, we're about at the point where it wouldn't be a bad idea to go on to the next paper. So if anybody has comment, question, go ahead. I have a comment, Roger, if I may, that is from the point of view of uh, patients, of course, and the community that has been, have been mentioned so far. And I fully agree with what Naim and Jorn mentioned. The genes are not our destiny. And that is a very good message to give to patients and their families. Otherwise, also, they wouldn't be motivated clearly in following up with the cure, visiting the doctors and so on. And also there is another aspect that I would consider, and that is not directly related to patients, that is the ultimate outcome, and that is policymakers. If we were to say to policymakers that everything is genetic and so on, obviously some policy guidelines like we have been doing in Europe and in other countries like the WHO, is doing and also easel is doing with few policy papers on you know nutrition and other suggestions would have less of an impact this was just my thought i think it's a good thought we also by the way anyone want to comment on that we do have one question from the audience actually that came in through linkedin so i'm looking at it now this is from michael Beto from the fatty liver alliance question about that important data the age groups i.e 40 to 60 is that when they were diagnosed with NAFL? 5.7 years is a lot uh, yes i believe so i think this was diagnosed and then they were followed up over that long time point that would match my recollection with that, why don't we step into our next paper and who would like to go next? Great. I'm happy to go next. So I chose to discuss the paper by Monica Bertoya on the incident rate of selected outcomes among patients with NASH and evidence of fibrosis or cirrhosis. Dr. Bertoya is from the Optum's lab group, and this paper was presented in the session this morning on the NAFLD clinical aspects like many of these other papers. And I was really excited to see this paper because they were able to characterize a large sample with suspected NASH. And we really have very little epidemiologic data about patients with NASH. And 
so I was interested to see what the incident rates would be of various outcomes. So this study utilizes the Optum EHR research database, which includes a large real-world cohort of structured information. So they're pulling information from payers. You know, they have diagnostic codes, labs, procedural codes. And then they also have all this unstructured information, which she briefly mentioned in the presentation. And they basically have a natural language processing system that is able to pull information that's noted in the medical record. So, and she didn't go into a lot of details about this. Apparently, there's another paper that does, but it was basically able to pull out information and details from the medical record that are otherwise not coded well. And, and as we know, fatty liver traditionally has been very poorly coded. So I was excited to see this. They also define fibrosis in a variety of ways. They use the natural language processing. They also calculated non-invasive scores when they were available for APRI, NAPL fibrosis score. And they used imaging when it was available as well. Um, and they had a similar way of de defining cirrhosis. And then they looked at a number of outcomes. In the published abstract, they only list maybe five or six outcomes. But in her presentation, she showed a lot more outcomes, although I need to, uh, I think we all want, would want to see that one again because um, it, there's a lot of data that was presented very quickly. So I look forward to kind of reviewing that in more detail when we can slow down the presentation. But anyway, the outcomes were estimated among the subset at risk. So they excluded those with the prior history. And it sounded like the outcomes were mostly from the ICD-10 coding diagnostic code. So with all that said, they had their total sample was 93,000 patients with likely NASH. And about 50% had fibrosis on their definition, and about a third had cirrhosis. The mean age was about 58 years, so midlife, and 60% were women. The cohort was 81% white, so that probably reflects some regional differences, but it's more white than you'd expect from a population sample of the U.S. Some things that I thought were interesting, less than 5% of the sample had undergone liver biopsy, which is not ultimately surprising, but I think it just points to the fact that liver biopsy is rarely used in, um, in our patients and that a lot of people with NASH probably are not being diagnosed by liver biopsy. And we need to think about that when new therapies are coming out. And also transient elastography, very few in the sample had that. In terms of the risk factors or the different outcomes and how they related, they looked at those with NASH and they basically calculated the incident rate per 1,000 person years for various conditions. And if you had NASH with fibrosis versus if you had NASH with cirrhosis. Interestingly, diabetes was pretty similar, about the rate of 26 or so roughly. Um, again, the, the slide went, went by kind of quickly, but 26 per 1,000 person year and it was similar whether you had NASH with fibrosis or cirrhosis. Chronic kidney disease was the most common of the outcomes that presented and was much more common if you had cirrhosis compared to fibrosis. And I'm not sure if that reflects hypertension or some other related cardiometabolic disease or something else. Your risk of an MI was about double if you had cirrhosis versus fibrosis with NASH. And not surprisingly, liver transplant was very low for the group of NASH with fibrosis. It was higher if you had cirrhosis, 2.7 per 1,000 person years, but globally was you know very low in comparison to the cardiometabolic risk factors. Similarly, HCC was much lower. So these kind of hard liver outcomes were much lower. So my main takeaway is that still NASH is very difficult to, to diagnose. In, in this paper, 
they used a lot of techniques to try and get at it, but still the sample that they came across, we need a little more information to hear about how well it is validated and especially their natural language processing method uh, to make sure that we're not getting patients that had a rule out NASH diagnosis as counted as NASH, for example. So NASH is hard to diagnose. And also this sample is probably reflective of a very higher risk NASH sample, given the amount of fibrosis and the high prevalence of cirrhosis among those with NASH of about a third. So even in this high risk sample, the most common outcomes were cardiometabolic related and they were not liver related outcomes, um, which I think highlights that point. And we've seen that in a number of papers in a number of different contexts, but just stresses for me really stresses the fact that this is a systemic disease process uh, and that probably the likely approach to treatment needs to consider NASH as a systemic disease. Thanks. That's a great summary. And I thought it was really an interesting paper. Anybody have any questions or comments? I have a comment. You mentioned this, Michelle, but uh, typically, you know, what I've seen in the literature when they use these very large databases, whether it's the Optum or the National Inpatient Survey, they start with 20 million people and they find 10,000 cases of NAFO disease that we know affects 25% of the adult population. It just always makes me pause, as you said, in the control group, how many cases of NAFL do we have? And then they don't calculate the FIP4 and the APRI in the control group typically. So you end up with this, in my mind, biased cohort. And I, I mean, the natural language processing, and this is a form of, I guess, AI in a way, I, I think this is you know valid and the data is exciting and we need more outcome data. But this is always the lingering concern I have. The other thing we talked about earlier with the FIP4, I remember, you know, looking at uh, also that session and being impressed that FIP4 is still holding against all these new biomarkers. But the one thing that's emerging that, like, honestly, we need to dissect every component of these scores. So FIP4 is, like, significantly affected by age. It's actually useless in the pediatric age group. You know, you take 18 to 35 and it's very questionable. So it doesn't become actually good until you're, like, in your 40s. And then once you hit 65, you have to adjust the cutoff also. And the NAFL fibrosis score, there was another presentation looking at the effect of BMI. And now you have to have different cutoffs for severe obesity. And then diabetes, there was some questions. So we, we still struggle. And I think all these cohorts with biopsy-proven disease, they're so biased because they have such high prevalence of advanced disease. And then people take it to the general population and say, oh, we're going to start with trip 4 And it just, we're not there yet. And I don't know, I, I think in my mind, we need some direct measures. So that's why I'm a, a big proponent of the more complex serologic biomarkers and more like the elastography. I think FIP4 has a role definitely, but when I see this data, it just makes me a little bit anxious that people are going to get carried away with FIP4 and it's just not that great, to be honest. I completely agree. I was excited to kind of hear about how they were going to address this and using the NLP is a step above, perhaps, just looking at the ICD-10 codes, which we know people are not coding um, this condition uh, unless it's you know very obvious or my more high-risk patients. And I, I'm still very skeptical. I completely agree on how it was done and not sure what exactly was the sample that was captured um, compared to those that were not captured. As a statistician, which is where I train, I've had this reaction a few times today that people tossed out very, very large sample sizes, forgetting that a large skewed sample is not any better than a small skewed sample and is inferior to a smaller, truly random sample. So when I looked at numbers where I said, that's got to be low, 
I immediately went to the place that you folks have just gone, which is there are all these reasons for it to be low. And what, what scares me is people who are not statistically trained will give those numbers a lot more credence than they probably deserve. It's an important data set because it gives us an idea of that there is a patient population out there that experiences those outcomes. I agree with Naeem and you, Michelle, that it's an undercoding, and but some patients are affected. And following up with the comments on the on, on the FIB4, we've discussed it this morning in the think tank. The context of use is important, and we might have different biomarkers in different age groups that are relevant with different cutoffs then, I guess, too. And uh, as Naeem mentioned, the impact of age on those is eminent. And the better we get in, in defining those biomarkers and the endpoints we're interested in, the more we'll learn on which biomarker to use in which population to actually predict the outcome. And that's the strength of that analysis again, Michelle, because they know about the outcomes. And when I have a patient in front of me today, I'd like to know, is this going to be cardiovascular disease? Is this going to be cirrhosis? And if I have a drug, I might choose differently uh, between those uh, endpoints if I could predict that. Thoughts or comments on that? Or shall we move on? Not a bad time to move on to our next paper, actually. So who would like to go next? Ladies first, Livia. Go go for it, Livia. Have fun. The floor is yours. Okay, thank you, Naeem. I thought you wanted to continue this conversation uh, started a few minutes ago because my topic is going to be a bit different. However, I'm happy that you mentioned the think tank this morning. And I enjoyed that particularly where Jorn was speaking, of course, together with Quentin and other panelists. And from the, I just mentioned one thing before going to do the deep dive in my topic. And from the patient perspective, especially knowing uh, our president who went through more than eight biopsies, I, I think it is very important, the aspect of non-invasive technologies. And the fact that, as uh, Naeem also mentioned, we have a prevalence in Europe around between actually 25 and 29 percent of people with NASH, but actually the diagnosed one is 3 percent. That was something that got really so much my attention. And that was linked to the fact that there is lack of awareness in many JPs, as I mentioned before. But also there is another question that is linked to that. A general practitioner or primary care doctor could say, why should I invest in screening and detecting, you know, NAFOLD or NASH when so far at the moment there is no medicine for that? So that is another aspect that we need to address as organizations and with policymakers clearly. Having said this, um, I would move to the topic I selected for today and uh, that got my attention, which is the EASL CDC Symposium on COVID-19 and the liver. You might ask why I am interested in this and there are, I would say, uh, two reasons that you might imagine. The first one is obviously uh, that there is a big deal being discussed at the moment everywhere in the world, especially with the variants uh, of uh, the virus. And secondly, we have, I said, uh, we have an inspiring president. And so we have a program dedicated to liver patients and transplant recipients. And this program is about COVID-19 in this population. And we receive a lot of questions. So I wanted to understand more about this and uh, trying to be more helpful for the community. That's why I selected this uh, session. And also, unfortunately, I lost my daddy two months ago, so of complications of COVID. So that is also another aspect. The symposium was extremely interesting and 
and inspiring. I would focus here on a couple of aspects because we don't have time clearly to go in depth in every aspect and probably uh, is not needed. And that is the presentation that was provided by Christoph Neumann Heffelin. I hope you and I pronounce it well because he's from Germany <laughs> and he presented interesting data about SARS-CoV-2 infection in immunocompetent and immunosuppressed individuals. He said that um, in immunocompetent uh, individuals, the antibody response they've been seeing in this study is clearly not present in all individuals, as we all know, and it is waning many patients and only partially neutralizing. However, the T-cell response as a rapid induction and the prolonged contraction and a functional memory. Whereas in immunosuppressed patients, as you might imagine, the antibody response is often absent and as a viral evolution leading to immune escape. Also, the T-cell response is delayed and as an impaired function and also a reduced memory capacity. Also, he presented very interesting numbers, at least for our side, because this is the first time that these were presented. And that was dedicated to immunocompromised individuals and especially dedicated to liver transplant recipients. These numbers, they had 80 transplanted patients and only 47% had a positive response to the vaccine. I'm not sure I can say which type of vaccine it was, but I would say that, I don't know if I can say the the name of the brand, but uh, it was the the new type of vaccination, let's say so. So, and instead, obviously, the healthy controls uh, had a 100% positive response. Some of the aspects that were common and that they highlighted in the study, they were able to identify few predictors of vaccination failure in liver transplant recipients. And these are, as we can imagine, age, uh, kidney issues like lower EGR, EGFR, sorry, and clearly medications. Then he mentioned another study from Israel that I don't have the numbers with me at the moment, but I can investigate when the session will be available online. And that is that unfortunately, the preliminary findings of this study are suggesting that the vaccine response is even lower in kidney transplant recipients compared to liver transplant recipients. And finally, another presentation that got my attention was the one from Professor Umberto Mandelli, who described or actually he should have been describing the impact of COVID-19 of the pandemic, the liver patient population in general. However, to my surprise, national of patients were not included in, in this study. However, However, it is interesting because he mentioned that one of the most striking aspects, it was this impact of one year delays in liver program, and this will be increasing of more than 44,000, the HCC cases, 
and an increase of estimates of liver-related death between 2021, obviously, and 2030, that will reach a staggering number of nearly 80,000 people. This study is the Muno Martinez and all published on the Journal of Hepatology in 2021. For one of the few sessions I've been following today, I was pleased to see that there were also some practical suggestion, which is something that often, unfortunately, is missing in uh, some sessions, because we often see uh, discussing, you know, numbers, cases, a lot of interesting numbers that can be used for, you know, policymakers and organization to work and improve and make changes. However, rarely uh, suggestions are mentioned in a clearly way. And this was not the case because suggestions were made, as I mentioned. And as we can imagine, the first one is the maintenance or activation where we don't have of multidisciplinary team. I know that this is the case. We are witnessing that from our point of view of uh, my privileged observatory of the Global Liver Institute. So we work with partners around the world. And so I know that these multidisciplinary teams are getting place little by little everywhere, not at the same speed, obviously, of US or Germany or UK or other countries that are ahead. We have some good examples in Italy, but it depends where you live, as often is the case. And another suggestion was that I think is also very clear the way ILC has been organized this year, and that is telemedicine. And this, uh, the recommendation is to increase a lot telemedicine on this aspect because it can reach patients everywhere. And, and also clearly keep surveillance programs and implement COVID-19 vaccinations in patients with liver diseases. Now, this is something that has been done in US, of course, as we know, in Italy. Italy, at least with the Italian Association of, of for the Liver, ISF, has been suggested to our policymakers to include liver patients as one of the top categories to be vaccinated. And this was already at the end of 2020. So there are some good practices to take example from. And finally, the last suggestion was to try to maintain the WHO 2030 targets that we all know, like HCB elimination programs, HBV vaccination, but also fight obesity and diabetes. As you probably know, the WHO recently issued a recommendation on diabetes and we will be working together next year because they will focus finally on obesity that is becoming clearly a global threat. So these were the most important aspects I would like to highlight of this session and if there are questions, I'm here. Well, I must say that was a beautiful and eloquent presentation, Livia. You had big shoes to fill representing Donna and the Global Liver Institute, and we did a wonderful job. So that was very nicely done. It's funny, I agree. I was thinking she doesn't sound like Donna. 
uh, to the ear, but she sounds like Donna to the brain. I couldn't agree more, yes. And what was interesting, what you mentioned about the response to the vaccine being a little bit lower with the kidney transplant recipients compared to the liver, maybe that had to do with the fact that we target lower levels for the tacrolimus and you know, immunosuppression in general for liver transplant compared to kidney transplant. But maybe also this is a good opportunity for us to look at our transplant patients and try to minimize their exposure to immunosuppressive agents. I mean, this is something we should be thinking of every time we see these patients. But the response to the COVID vaccine is another incentive. Of course, we do it to help their kidneys from the toxic effects of calcineural inhibitors. We also try to minimize the risk of infection, but also response to the COVID vaccine should be another reason. So maybe a good um, time to bring back all the transplant recipients. Sometimes, you know, we think they show up to all their appointments, but if someone had a transplant 10, 15 years ago, you'll be surprised how many of them don't follow on a yearly basis. So I thought that was important. So I, I agree. That was a fantastic and eloquent presentation. And good point, Naeem. I think it's time we probably go on to the next presentation. Uh, Naeem, you want to go last? You want me to go last? Yes, I'll, I'll go. I'll do my part. I'd like to highlight the presentation by Dr. Oscar Carrasco Zavalos. This was as part of the PATH AI presentation at Hazel. The title was AI-Based Histologic Measurement of NASH or AIM-NASH, a Drug Development Tool to Assess Clinical Trial and Now, we've talked about this before, that pathologist interpretation of liver biopsy is imperfect. And we've known for a while now that there's inter and intrapathologist variability in interpreting the individual histologic features of NASH from lobular inflammation, uh, ballooning, uh, to steatosis, fibrosis. The agreement has been, historically speaking, lower for inflammation and ballooning, uh, a little bit better for steatosis and fibrosis. But there was a recent paper that I was part of that we published in the Journal of Hepatology using the uh, eminence trial, not only looking at the agreement on the histologic features, but also looking at histologic criteria to enroll in clinical trials. And uh, we found that the same pathologist, if you had him or her read the slides two times, they would not agree on qualifying the same patients with the same slides for the same clinical trial. So this uh, was kind of concerning to all of us. And then we also looked at the agreement on the histologic endpoints that are recognized by the FDA, the NASH resolution without worsening in fibrosis and fibrosis improvement without worsening in NASH. And there was also low kappa in terms of the agreement on uh, these endpoints. So um, I think PATH AI tried to tackle all of these points in the presentations at EASL. So they uh, developed this machine learning algorithm to assess the histologic features of NASH. And then they looked at everything I said. So they looked at, can they improve on the interpretation of lobular inflammation, ballooning, steatosis, fibrosis individually? Can they look at the uh, histologic uh, criteria to be enrolled in a clinical trial and can they improve the kappa for that? And then they wanted to see if they can also evaluate their machine learning algorithm on predicting the outcomes uh, at the end of the trial, so the NASH resolution and fibrosis improvement. So this was an impressive data set that they used to develop their uh, algorithm. So the training data set included almost 6,000 biopsies from six phase two and three uh, clinical trials. And this is how they developed the algorithm. They had the pathologists annotate the histologic features. So the pathologists will circle ballooned hepatocyte, uh, steatotic hepatocyte, the lobular inflammation, and then they train the machine learning algorithm to recognize the patterns that the pathologists are using to identify these histologic features. And then they had also a validation data set that included 639 patients 
patients. And what they showed initially in terms of looking at the individual histologic features, they had consensus pathologists, so three pathologists agree on inflammation, ballooning, steatosis, etc. And then they compared the machine learning algorithm to the consensus reading. And then they did this pairwise pathologist assessment. So they had pairs of pathologists look at the histologic features. And what they showed that actually the machine learning algorithm compared to the consensus did better than the pairwise pathologist assessment for each of the features. So for lobular inflammation, for ballooning, steatosis, and fibrosis. So they kind of answered that first point in terms of the intra-reader variability on the histologic features. The second thing they did was to look at the trial enrollment histologic criteria. And here they compared the machine learning to the pathologist. And they showed a similar accuracy in terms of teasing out F4 versus F1 to F3, and then identifying NAFLD activity score of four or higher. And the great thing about the machine learning algorithm is that when you look at reproducibility, the kappa is one. You get the same reading with algorithm when you apply it to the same slide. And this has been a big issue with pathologists that you don't always get the same reading, even when they're reading the same uh, slide at two different time points. And then they looked at machine learning assessment of endpoints. So the fibrosis improvement, the NASH resolution, and then two-point improvement in the NAFLD activity score. And basically, they showed similar accuracy to pathologists. It was a little bit more accurate for specific features. And again, they had also very high kappa with machine learning. So I think this is great. I mean, even you know, for some uh, of these features, the machine learning performed at least as good as the pathologist, but at least you know that you're going to get the same reading every time you apply machine learning to the same slide. And then in the last uh, portion of the presentation, they looked at using this machine learning to um, actually assess the delta in terms of improvement on these histologic features. So they started by looking at the delta fibrosis improvement between the active treatment arm and the placebo arm. And they found for fibrosis, for example, the delta was at 13% when you use machine learning. But if you use the pathologist to predict fibrosis improvement, the delta was only 10%. And this could be a big deal uh, for trials in terms of showing that magic p-value and the statistical significance. So increasing the delta between the active treatment arm and placebo is a big deal. They did the same for NASH resolution. And here the delta with machine learning was 9% difference between a treatment and placebo and only 5% with the pathologist diagnosis. And then they also looked at improvement in the NAFLD activity score by two points or more. And here the delta was 41% with machine learning and 27% with the pathologist. So I do believe that adding an AI component to pathologic interpretation should be done. I think it's probably not going to be accepted by the FDA. I think we heard recently from the FDA that they don't feel it's ready for prime time. Uh, but I think this should be included now so we can generate that data to convince the FDA that we can use this as an endpoint. Of course, the caveat is always that you still need to do that damn liver biopsy with all the potential for complications. And the, the fact that the disease is heterogeneous and if you do two biopsies on the same patient from left lobe, right lobe, or even if you just change the angle for the needle, you're going to have slightly different histologic severity. So this is a step forward. My hope and really passion in life is to get liver biopsy out of the whole drug development algorithm in the next five years. But for the next five years, this is great. People listening to this who aren't watching, I can I should tell you that there was a lot of vigorous head nodding going on among the other panelists on video right now while Naeem was talking about his passion to do this. Naeem, thinking about that paper as a statistician, I was really heartened because you can't get to NITS 
non-invasive testing until you have a consistent standard to lay it up against. So the CAFA score is A, a problem in trials, but B, it's a huge problem in getting beyond biopsy. I talked about this once or twice on the podcast, please forgive me. But in 1939, the FDA approved pregnant marijuana or Premarin for treatment of certain peri- and postmenopausal symptoms in women. By the mid-90s, Wyeth was selling $2 billion a year of this stuff, but they could not get a generic. And the reason they couldn't is because the distribution of the drug in the patient system was so erratic that nobody could make anything that bad. Therefore, you couldn't get a generic. Okay. Every time I look at biopsy, this is what I think of as Premarin. And we've got to get to a point where we get consistent scoring. I mean, it doesn't even have to be right, quote unquote. It just has to be consistent so that we can use the non-invasive test as a clear metric. I found this paper really encouraging because that was the main thing I was looking for. Other reactions? Well, my comment would be, I guess you mentioned that and Naeem pointed it out. You still need a guy to train the machine, but at least the machine does the same mistakes as this only guy then in subsequent readings. So you get more consistency and you have more ability to compare results. We have to understand what is the relevance of a ballooned hepatocyte on a liver biopsy for our patient in the end to actually move beyond the biopsy and, and link outcome to NITs, uh, as, as Naeem rightfully said, that that's the ultimate goal. But up until here, I think introducing consistency in the readings, that that's a big step forward. Yeah, I think that one of the clever things that this group has done in terms of training the machine learning algorithm is to train it on the individual features and not give the machine the slide saying, okay, this is an apple activity score of two. It's training the actual features. So this is a balloon hepatocyte. This is what fibrosis looks like. This is lymphocytic infiltrate. And then they can kind of put a heat map over the slide. They showed examples of this as well, saying, okay, well, this is the sort of quantitative percent of this slide that has X number of it is covered by ballooning or X number of it is covered by fibrosis. And so I think that's very clever because just like uh, to your point, that if you're training it to, uh, this is my pathologic assessment as an expert, this is a NAFLD activity score of two, then there may be variability. We know there's variability around that. But, you know, I still think in, in this paper, they're kind of morphing to those accepted standards. And I think that to Roger's point as well, you know, to get away from liver biopsy, I'm really interested in understanding what if we looked at these kind of global assessments of fibrosis or ballooning done by a machine learning program and looked at how that improves. So a X percent improvement in fibrosis or ballooning or inflammation, and how does that relate to a hard clinical outcome. That I think would be really interesting data to get and maybe helpful. But I completely agree with um, the other point of that, you know, there's variability in, in the slides as well and, and in the samples. And so that level of granularity may not be possible to achieve when you're only looking at such a small portion of the liver. You know, the fact, Michelle, is that if we actually subjected liver biopsy today to the same rigorous criteria for biomarkers, liver biopsy would have never made it as a anything. I mean, no one can do you know, five liver biopsies on the same patients within a six-month period. They're just logistically impossible. And that's why liver biopsy stands. Otherwise, these are the experiments we need to do. Biopsy the same patient every month and tell me what happens if they had the burger the week before. We have more ballooned hepatocytes. No one knows. I mean, the fact that you can have an AFLD activity score of eight and you can have uh, lots of fibrosis that we call stage two, and then you can improve everything. You can lose all the inflammation, decrease steatosis by two grades, 
grades and you still have two balloon hepatocytes on the biopsy and now you don't have Nash resolution. I mean, this whole concept to me is just absurd. And you can also decrease your ALT, reduce your MRI PDFF, have improvement in biomarkers of fibrosis. None of it will count because you have two balloon hepatocytes on a biopsy. This is the status we're in now. Think Premarin right? Really bad technology that you need to improve on, but you can't replicate it. Therefore, you can't prove you're improving on it. That is the challenge. So we're far enough into this that I want to go to my paper because we're going to wear our audience in a few minutes and probably ourselves as well. I could talk about this paper for Professor Serfati presented it all in 15 minutes. I could talk about it for an hour, but I'm not going to do that. This was an effort to take a look at the French population, look at lean NAFLD and see how that compared to non-lean NAFLD in terms of severity of disease, clinical outcomes, et cetera. I think that's important for a couple of reasons. First of all, in the absence of clear proof on genetics, epigenetics, or polygenetics, lean NASH is the best proof we have that there is no such thing as NASH, but there are at least two diseases going on because by logic, that just doesn't feel like it should be the same disease as what we find in obese patients with, with metabolic characteristics, number one. And number two is if in fact, as is generally hypothesized, these patients are faster progressors, then it means that they're the most expensive patients for the healthcare system to treat. And if you take a look at governments anticipating the advent of pharmacological agents and everything that's going to mean, if we simply tell everybody that 25% of the population has NAFLD, we need to treat them all, we become the same thing as statins 25 years later, and resistance to the statins was was legion. The best way to reduce that resistance is to identify populations where the risk is defined more stringently in a shorter term, the economics get better, and the urgency to treat gets better. And lean NAFLD or lean NASH feels like the easiest place to do that. So with that, the paper that Professor Safadi presented, NASHCO study, they used the Constance cohort, which is a representative sample of French population, about 200,000 patients, a little more than that, linked to the National Hospital Database. So a lot of patients and very, very rich data. And what they were looking for were the prevalence and characteristics of lean NASH patients. And then what did that mean in terms of natural history and morbidity mortality? I'm not going to go into all this in detail, except to say that, well, that their definitions of lean were pretty standard, okay? And that the inclusions were pretty standard, alcohol consumption, HBV, HCV. One of the questions that came up repeatedly at the end is, how do we know that the lean NASH patients were not lying about how much alcohol they consumed? And the answer is, we don't, right? That's a limitation of the study if we're not, if we're not doing alcohol levels on everybody, and that has its own problems. But here are a few points worth making. Number one, the NAFLD prevalence among lean patients was 5.3%. But if you flip that, what it means is that one out of every six NAFLD patients in France is a lean NAFLD patient because of the distributions of the population, right? So it may only be 5% of the population cohort, but it would be one-sixth of the patients that need to be treated, which makes it, I think, a larger issue than um, than we'd be thinking about normally. Pretty consistently on demographics, they, they were, well, virtually regardless of what the characteristic was, they were a little worse than the non-NAFLD population and far different than the non-lean NAFL population. Whether you're talking about age, they were slightly older than the non-NAFL population, much younger than the non-lean NAFL population. The Asians were much more highly represented in lean than in the other two groups. North Africans were more highly represented in the lean group than in the non-NAFL group. They had less schooling, more uh, metabolic risk factors when you compare them to the non-NAFLs. On the other hand, when you compare them to NAFLs, they were significantly less metabolically impaired. In fact, 56% of them had neither diabetes nor high blood pressure, nor nor dyslipidemia, and 74% had either none or one of those factors. Okay, so when you take that and you play it out more broadly, what you learn 
Also, the severity of injury was significantly greater. The lean patients were roughly twice as likely to have advanced fibrosis, and they were roughly three quarters more likely to have an elevated ALT level, which were the two criteria that were used to assess severity of liver injury. And then if you took a look at the different mortality measures, by virtually every standard that they looked at, mortality in, in the lean NAFLD group was significantly higher than any other group. In, in liver events, off the charts, really 3% in that group, 1%, less than 1% actually. In the non-lean group, hepatocellular carcinoma significantly higher. Cardiovascular disease significantly higher. Chronic kidney disease massively higher. Uh, what was not significantly higher, interestingly enough, was extrahepatic cancers. And we've seen other studies that suggest that extrahepatic cancer is a, is a major issue in NAFLD patients. That may be right, but this group was not disproportionately likely to have that problem. In the end, the cumulative incidence of death, and please forgive me, I'm going to do this with my hands for anyone who can see this. The curve for the non-NASH and non-lean looks something like this. The curve for the lean-NASH looks something like this. Okay, vast chasmic differences and cosmic differences too. Cosmic in that at the end, lean was growing a lot faster than the other group's chasmic and that the gulf was huge. So their conclusions were, I think, pretty straightforward and simple that lean NAFLD is not rare. It represents 16% of all NAFLD. Just because it's rarer in the lean population doesn't make it rare in the context of the disease. It's associated with ethnicity and to some degree with metabolic comorbidities, but not nearly as much as non-lean NAFLD. So in that regard, it's also a different disease. It's not born of overall metabolic conditions. Increased risk of virtually every complication and death that they looked at by a significant margin. And um, the rather interesting question that raised for me was, so how do you identify identify these patients before they set off on a bad path. And I think that's something we're going to have to consider because right now, in, in, in a world where, at least in the States, half patients find out that they've uh, had fatty liver disease about the time they find out they have cirrhosis. For lean NASH, which is more aggressive, how do we find it early enough that we can actually help those patients for help? I think it, it's a huge question. And then the other half, I think, is it proves the case that goes, these are patients where the economics and the human compassion of treatment are important because they go faster and they cost more. And I'll put it in that order because I care more about the compassion than the money, although health insurers might not see it that way. So in four or five minutes, that's, that's what that paper was. I think that covered it well. I agree. It's a very tricky situation when clinically we see these patients and when, they, when we happen to see these patients by chance, you know, maybe they got an ultrasound for abdominal pain and then we incidentally found it and they made their way to us, which is generally how I see them anyway, uh, people with that are lean with, with fatty liver disease. So yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a major issue. You know, I, I do wonder about the alcohol use. I think they did look at alcohol use and I think the lean NAFLD, the odds ratio is like two or something, two and a half or more alcohol use compared to those with non-lean NAFLD. So there may be a component there as well, but still they look very different otherwise than the NAFLD group. And so the fact of the matter is, is that we don't know if there are, is this a completely subphenotype of NAFLD and should it be thought about differently? There's a lot that we need to understand about this group that this paper definitely adds to our knowledge. Yeah, Naeem was the guy who taught me the phrase baffled. Yeah. And, and th at the very least, this is a baffled population. But you know, Roger, I mean, you know who are the leanest patients in my clinic that I see? Number one, the alcoholics. Two, patients with cryptogenic, nasal that 
end stage with sarcopenia and they lost a lot of weight. Number three is cancer patients, HCC patients. So, you know, this is the one thing I wasn't sure. Did they exclude that baseline, you know, people with cirrhosis, people maybe with cancer? I mean, how was that done? The alcohol data? Because, I mean, it was staggering to me, as you said, to see that the risk of, you know, liver events is three times the regular, you know, obese, overweight NAFO. The risk of HCC was also almost, you know, three times higher. The risk of CKD was way higher. And, you know, CKD is a fibrotic disease. So looking at these people that are just so advanced or they're drinking heavily and lying about it and calling them lean NAFLD. And that's why we're seeing all these outcomes. Because if we're going to prioritize this patient population, it's going to be a problem. We're just getting the word out that you can screen diabetics. It's cost effective to shift strategy now to this patient population. It's going to be an interesting endeavor, but the outcomes were definitely interesting to say the least. I do not recall that they screened for cancer. I think they simply screened based on uh, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, and excessive alcohol consumption. How about a baseline cirrhosis? I, I don't recall seeing that. I don't recall that they did. And I mean, I doubt they had so many decompensated cirrhotics, but I worried that they included, you know, compensated that just decompensated over time. Last week, I don't know if the BMI is always the best way also to assess. For- All this is hard to say. I mean, but but the thing to keep in mind, though, name is that really jumped out at me is we tend to think of this in terms of what percentage of the lean population are they. But if you flip that and you ask what percentage of, of NAFLD cases they are, because so much more of the population is lean, that number is going to go way up. And hepatologists don't tend to treat lean patients in NASH and NAFLD, right? So it's not the way we think about it. I'm not that I'm a doctor, but it's, but it's, it's someone who's an observer. It's not the way we think about it. But it, with all the caveats you've got, it might be more important than we think it is in the context of overall population. The way I'm thinking, Roger, that maybe we should screen for NAFLD in all adults and just call it a day, the same way we screen for hepatitis C. I mean, with lean NAFLD and diabetes and overweight and obesity, who's left out of being at risk for NAFLD? No one. So number one, I think we're all in violent agreement. Uh, number two, there will be huge problems with every health system in the world in terms of how do you pay for all that and fears about the benefit. I'll share this at another podcast, but there is a very simple algorithm to screen the entire population. You'll end up probably with 2% of the adult population that will need special care. I want to do a podcast about why NASH isn't cholesterol and why the drugs aren't statins. And I think there's a rather compelling economic case for it. And if you take what you just said and lay it on top of it, that will help. So we're going to do that sometime this summer. And I will certainly invite you to come do it with me. All right. Love it. With that, I want to move to... Uh, may I share a thought, Roger, about this? Because I was very impressed by your and Naim discussion and presentation. And I think that the two can be linked somehow, although they are very different topics. And one is the first thing that we need, I obviously speak always from the patient perspective of the community perspective, and that is to increase the screening. How do you do that? Doing more disease awareness and clearly also without worrying patients, because if you tell them you have to go through a liver biopsy, there is no way that a person who doesn't feel that, you know, is dying would go through that unless obviously the doctors is seriously prescribing that. So that is one aspect. Another aspect that I was thinking about is that it doesn't surprise me that this study was done in France, if I understand correctly. And that is a country like Italy, where obviously we have very good wine. So clearly it doesn't surprise what Naim mentioned about the patients that he visits in the clinic, that some of them drink uh, some alcohol, although I wouldn't think that they are alcohol addicted, obviously, but it depends on the quantity, obviously, of wine you drink. And then another aspect uh, um, 
I was thinking of, and that is something that Professor Arun Sanyal made me think about once we organized one of the panels of International Nash Day dedicated to Lynn Nash. And he rightly said that, uh, in his opinion, this is not the correct definition. And the definition should be Nash in Lynn individuals rather than Lynn Nash. And, and he is right, because uh, under the methodological point of view, we have to think of lean individuals who have this disease. And uh, regarding the, the last aspect about the cost that you have been discussing now, um, as Naim said, uh, in the end, you have to take care or cure a slower percentage of the population. But this is uh, very good to make policymakers to understand that not only you have Nash, that pretty much now the community understand that can be linked to many other comorbidities like diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, and obesity. So this is a message that the community is getting. What the community is not getting is that you have national individuals. However, if you show to policymakers that the cost they are going to afford if they don't take care of the disease, so if they don't do the screening, for instance, or one-day screening campaign like Naim mentioned, or other ideas that we might have, the cost of of having all the patients to be cured afterwards is going to be extremely higher for the public expenditure in Italy, in France, for instance, where we don't have in Italy uh, insurances, as you know. So we have NHS. So basically, uh, this is uh, one thing that we managed to do when I was working in the European Liver Patient Association, and we worked on that for HCV. So in the beginning, the HCV cure was extremely expensive and you know something about that in US. In Europe, it was less expensive. And we managed to have special budgets allocated for patients, especially in Italy, where the prevalence and uh, was extremely high. And the policymakers understood that it was better for them to cure patients with the new drugs rather than not doing that because the cost would have been much higher for the economy. And we show also, you know, that you could save on liver transplant and so on that is extremely expensive and so on. So, so Olivia, that's great. And one of the things that I've learned over time is that when Donna comes on the show, she virtually always gets the last word. And I think you've just demonstrated that that's a Global Liver Institute thing because I'm going to give you the last word on this conversation and go to our final question, okay? Thank you. That's, that's a great set of comments and I think a really, a really thoughtful way to look at it. Okay, so based on what we saw today, each of you, what's one thing you think is likely to come out of this meeting from today or later, if you have a better answer, that you think will change how the treating world or the policy world looks at NAFLD and NASH. Brave one, go first. For me, probably looking at cardiovascular outcomes potentially as an endpoint by itself and going back to the whole cholesterol and statins and maybe at some point we'll get to that where we just do these large trials with thousands of individuals and uh, look at cardiovascular mortality, liver mortality overall. But that could be something that based on some of the new data and decrease in life expectancy um, that we should uh, take more seriously, although it's very costly. That's great, Liam. Thanks. Next. So uh, for me, I think the, the theme that we're we're not talking about NAFLD affecting 20% of the population, it's the same disease and everyone is emerging. We have so many subgroups that we're better understanding. And uh, he mentioned 
one with the cardiovascular, you discussed the lean NAFLD. It's just such a similar phenotype, but the, the underlying driver are different in different patient populations. And I think we, we understand better today than, than we did two or three years ago. And that really emerges. And of course, on this podcast, I was very impressed with all my co-speakers' presentations. I think they did a great job. A- amen to that. You are not the habit of stealing my best lines, but I certainly agree with that one. Michelle, Livia, go ahead. For me, I would say it's the team science. You know, it's the idea that as a hepatologist, this is not just our disease. This is a systemic disease that we need input from our colleagues in primary care, in endocrinology, and cardiology, and others to go at this together. And it seems like the willingness to do that was kind of as, as high as I've ever seen at this meeting. I was very impressed. And also bringing in the nutrition and, you know, to tie it back with the food insecurity comments from earlier, you know, uh, understanding that the kind of socio implications of this disease are, are really important to address. So I really liked the kind of taking care of the whole patient and the, the whole disease. Okay. Thanks, Michelle. Olivia? Thank you, Roger. I have very few words to add what has been said, and I would like to lace with what Michelle just mentioned of NAFLD and NASH as systemic disease and the importance clearly of uh, nutrition. Clearly, it's not up to the science to take action <laughs> and do something, for instance, with the advertising of the junk food industry or sugary beverages and this kind of things or more exercise and so on because uh, the scientists are busy with other things like saving lives and so on and uh, providing data. However, I think that now the times are mature uh, for a a joint effort, a joint action that involves all the actors that we've been mentioning so far. And another key point that is very important uh, for us from the patient's perspective is that name mentioned and that hopefully in five years' time, not yet, but let's aim for five years, times will be mature for non-invasive technology and the consensus on that and can be included, you know, in the guidelines and used everywhere. Excellent. So first, I want to second what you were said. I've been tremendously impressed by the quality of everybody's presentations and comments today. And I think the people who stuck it out in the audience and the people who listened to the podcast have really got in for a treat. Second, I come originally out of politics and political polling, and I don't always think of things policy. I usually think about stats first, but today I'm going to go to policy. Because in order to be able to get this disease treated appropriately and paid for, we have to have greater clarity about exactly what people are buying. And whether we're talking about AI taking the variability out of testing, even if it's histology, and speeding the path to non-invasive tests, or whether we're talking about being able to zero in on patient populations with greater needs, and alternately, that large percentage of the population don't have that great a need, it becomes more rational to figure out the economics and the policy around bringing treatment of NAFLD and NASH into the conversation and into the population. And over time, as with all other diseases, that will spread. We'll learn more. We'll get better drugs. But we've got to start somewhere. And there are steps that I heard about today that I think make it easier to start sooner. So I emerge tremendously optimistic about that issue. Not that it's going to happen tomorrow morning at nine o'clock, but that it will happen sooner because of the things that we were talking about today. And with that, that's the last word I get. Let me just start to wrap up. I want to thank everybody who's here today. As I say, fantastic presentations and preparation. Livia, Michelle, uh, either one of you could be the rookie of the of the year, but uh, you're going to have to share it, at least for today. And Naeem and Yorn, fantastic as always. I want to thank the rest of my team, Magic Mike Wilson, who's now got eight hours to get this turned around and out. Uh, Eric Rounds, who's got a lot of work to do figuring out how we can 
can do a better job helping the people who want to get into the audience actually get in there. And Palatea Lee, who actually this week he's got less to do, but trust me, he will wind up with something. Tomorrow I start at two o'clock in the morning, but for we start at 1 p.m. for anybody who wants to come back and listen, 1 p.m. in the East, 7 p.m. in CET. For those who want to come back and listen live again, we'll be doing that. We'll be sending out more invitations. If you are listening to this tonight and you want to hear it live, make sure please to get me a note so I can send you a link you can use as a ticket to get into the room. Without a link, you can't get there. And we'd love to have as many of you as possible, and we will figure out by tomorrow how to get questions. So with all that, let me just say tomorrow's going to be another fantastic day in this conference. We're looking forward to being back here tomorrow night, or I am, with a whole different cast of characters. But thank you, you folks. And as to the audience, uh, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Want to join our live audience on Friday or Saturday? Go to the surfingnash.com homepage and click on the button right below our recording session dates and times. Fill out the form on the new page and provide an email address where we can send your ticket. Easy peasy. Join us again after the close of Friday's sessions. Our panel of surfers for Friday will include hepatology researchers and key opinion leaders doctors Manal Abdelmalek. Ken Pusi and Ian Rowe, liver wellness advocate Louise Campbell, pricing and forecasting guru Roger Green, all here tomorrow on the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast.